Well, friends, it is a privilege, as always, to be with you here this morning. Uh, the last time I was here um, and I had the opportunity to examine the Word of God with you, we began to explore the topic of spiritual depression, as the great Welsh preacher, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, calls it. And we looked at the topic uh, through the cry of the psalmist in the 42nd Psalm. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? There are many causes of uh, this spiritual depression. There are many reasons why we find ourselves in this state of affairs. And for each of those reasons, our precious scriptures speak to us in that state, giving us encouragement or rebuke or hope or understanding. And perhaps most striking, as we saw last time, is that the Bible doesn't pretend that spiritual depression isn't, re uh, isn't real or that it's easily ameliorated. Rather, we see that the psalmist speaks hope to himself. He's preaching the gospel to himself. But ultimately, the psalm ends on the same note that it begins. Why are you cast down, O my soul? This is a state that we as Christians have to learn to live in and through, and so we um, will consider it again. But I want to look at it in a, through a slightly different lens, through the lens of this particular passage. I want to consider a slightly different form of the malady of spiritual depression and the corresponding remedy for that malady. And we will each have difficult times in our lives. Some will be more intense than others. Some will be more protracted than others, whether just between ourselves or between um, ourselves and someone else. There's different intensities, different lengths, and each we will have different reasons for why we're encountering that particular state at that particular time. Yet, whatever we encounter those particular states, for however long, I am confident that our scriptures have something to speak to us. So we look today at 2 Peter. Now, Peter has written this letter to a group of Christians who are disheartened and discouraged. They believed in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and all seemed right with the world. But now, suddenly, there are doubts and fears arising. False teachers are teaching ideas that seem at odds with what they were taught and what they once believed. And it's into this disc discouragement that Peter is writing the letter. The state of these Christians reminds me of uh, the, uh, John Bunyan's allegory of the Christian life, The Pilgrim's Progress. And in the story, the main protagonist, you know, really ambiguously named Christian, um, he is ascending the hill of salvation until at last he stands atop the hill. And looking upon the cross, his heaven burden is unloosed. And it's, it's a glorious sight. And, and, and we read, Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on singing, thus far I did come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in till I came hither. What a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss. Must here the burden fall from my, off my back. Must here the strings that bound it to me crack. Blessed, crossed, blessed, sepulcher, blessed, rather be me, ra rather be the man that was there was put to shame for me. What joy, what bliss. Brothers and sisters, is this not how we can suppose our Christian life to be or ought to be? That we have reached salvation, that we have been given salvation, 
and then ought to be, all singing and jubilation from here on out. How are you today, Josh? Oh, you know, I'm, I'm good. Work is good. Wife is good. Kids are, you know, good. They're always well-behaved, right? As Lloyd-Jones writes, there is a false idea of a Christian held by many as of a man walking on the mountaintop. And there are some who think that if one is not always there, one is not a Christian at all. That is a thoroughly unscriptural view to take of the Christian man. And in 2 Peter, we see this situation played out. Peter writes in verse 1, To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Your faith is equal to mine, the Apostle Peter, the rock of the church. These people are Christians. But as we can see as we read further into 2 Peter, they are unhappy. They are most definitely ineffective. Their lives do not seem to lead to anything, and they are not helpful to other people. Not only that, but they are not very productive as far as they themselves are concerned, and their faith does not fill them with joy and with certainty. They are barren and unfruitful. So what are we to do about this? How can we as Christians live out lives that are, in contrast to verse 8, that we will examine, how can we live out lives that are effective and fruitful? As we examine our passage today, Peter will help us draw these ideas out. And in verses 3 and 4, Peter begins with not what we can do to cure this state, but with what God has already done. Then in verses 5, 6, and 7, Peter explains what we can do on the basis of what God has done what we can do in order to work through this malaise and discouragement. And then finally, in verse 8, Peter will expand on the why of it all, which will bring it all back to where we started. So, the state of what is, the state of what should be or can be, and then the why. So look with me as we begin in verse 3. His divine power, that is Jesus' divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He has granted. God has already given us these things. This is the state of what is, things to which we already have access. And what things are they? All things that pertain to life and godliness. Not some things, not most things, all things that pertain to life and godliness. But not only that, look at verse 4. He, that is Jesus, has granted to us. Again, he has already granted to us. Not he will grant, not he might grant. He has granted to us. He has granted to us his most precious and very great promises. Not only has he granted all things that pertain to life and godliness, but also his precious and very great promises. Brothers and sisters, if you don't hear anything else today, don't miss this. These are incredible statements. God has granted to you already. You don't need to be a certain level Christian. You don't need a certain amount of holiness. You don't need to be good enough. You don't even need to reach heaven. On this side of heaven, God has already granted to you all things that pertain to life and godliness. He has already granted to you his very great and precious promises. How awesome is that? 
There is nothing that we need to live a godly life that has not already been given to us. There is nothing that we could possibly need to live the lives to which God has called us. There is nothing that we could possibly need to be the man or woman of God that has not already been given to us. My friends, these are words to which we ought to cling most fervently. Look again with me at verse 3. How do we know that these promises have already been granted to us? How, does it, how do we know that they apply to us? His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. Now, knowledge is one of these ideas that Peter returns time and time again in this letter. In verse 2, in the salutation we read, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And again, in the benediction at the very last verse of the last chapter, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus and Savior Jesus Christ. Throughout this letter, Peter is keen to lay out the importance of the growth of the Christian in their knowledge of Christ. This is vital to their growth. So what does Peter mean in verse 3? His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. Past tense, Jesus has granted through the knowledge of him. What is this knowledge? What is the knowledge of him that comes through faith in him? This is salvation. Christian has reached the summit of the hill of salvation coming to knowledge of Christ. So you, Christian brother and sister... You have, having come into salvation, you already have been granted all things that pertain to life and godliness. You, Christian brother and sister, having knowledge of Christ in your salvation, have already been granted his great and precious promises. But if we've been granted all things for life and godliness, why are we still struggling with discouragement? Why can we cry out with the psalmist, why art thou downcast, O my soul? Why does Peter need to write any more in this letter to these Christians? Read with me from verse 5. From, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. You have been granted, make every effort to supplement your faith. Peter is saying that God has already given us these things, but there's an effort required to actually utilize them. So we move from the state of what is, in verses 3 and 4, to the state of what should be, or could be, or what ought to be, what we can do. In these verses, Peter is laying out the schematic for how the state of what is, what God has already done for us, how that is made efficacious in our lives. If you'll permit me a, a little bit of a crude analogy, I love tools. I love getting new tools. <laughs> if there's a specific task that, like, there's a specific tool made for that specific task, there's not a lot of motivation needed for me to go get that tool. And I'm renovating my house right now, and I have acquired a lot of tools, <laughs> much to my wife's chagrin. Um, and so I have this whole toolbox full of tools, really awesome tools. 
But then I'll be doing something like hanging a picture in the house, and I need to put a nail up. And rather than going and getting the right tool, I use whatever's closest to hand. <laughs> I just use the back of the drill and bang the, head, bang the nail in. I need to open a box, I grab an old screw and open it up. You know, whatever it might be, I use whatever's closest to hand, not the proper tool, because I am that lazy to go and get the proper tool. And I think similarly, we can view this passage. God has already given us this incredible tool chest full of everything that we could need for life and godliness. But as Peter is indicating, we have to make the effort to go to the garage, grab that tool, and make use of it, rather than simply making use of what is close to hand. We have some knowledge, but we need to grow in our knowledge. And that knowledge is already accessible. We can go grab it. We just need to make the effort to go pick it up. Make every effort to supplement your faith. The list of virtues that we're looking at, they are how our faith is supplemented, which is to say that the starting place is faith. We already looked at that. We already have faith in Christ. That is the point at which salvation came. We Christians already have faith. That's the basis, but we need to supplement our faith. And now we see that Peter prescribes a supplementation of our faith, a growth of our faith, an augmentation of our faith in order to be able to access and make use of this incredible tool chest that we have already been granted. And how is it supplemented? By making an effort. Now, we've been looking at Romans and what Paul has been writing in Romans. Is this a contradiction to what Paul has said in Romans? Paul has been clearly saying that we can do nothing. Our effort is meaningless. Our works are all for naught. The key here is to see what it is towards which the works are pointed. Paul has been saying that our works are fruitless and meaningless if they are pointed towards righteousness and goodness before God. We cannot earn favor or merit or righteousness before God. And if our works are pointed to that end, they'll fall flat. They'll be ineffective and fruitless. In contrast, in this passage, here Peter is starting after we have already been justified, after we have already been made right with Christ, already we have the righteousness of Jesus standing in our place. And it's in that state of already having been justified that we then work and make every effort and strive to supplement our faith, which is to say to lean more deeply into the work that has already been done on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we are, called, we are not called to sit around and wait for God to do what needs doing. A good Christian is not one who sits perfectly still and does nothing. No, my friends, we have here the picture of the Christian as the one who stands up and says, I have done nothing, but in Christ I have been made right before God. I have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. His precious and very great promises have already been granted to me. Therefore, therefore, clinging to his promise that the Holy Spirit will be with me and guide me, I will strive to supplement my faith, leaning into the one who has already redeemed me. I will make every effort to learn how I can lean more fully upon him. So we continue in verse five, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. 
Now, each of the items in this list can be called a virtue of some sort. So what is meant by here, virtue, can also be translated as excellence or moral excellence. It's a superlative, high commitment to the very best. I think especially of the Olympic athletes that we're watching now who have committed their bodies to excellence, where everything they eat, every calorie that they expend, every minute that they have is devoted to the end of physical excellence. And in that sense, in a similar sense, we are called to moral and spiritual excellence. The same word is um, found again uh, previously in verse three. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. God is the supreme emulator of this moral excellence. And our calling, our salvation, is a magnification of this excellence in God. Supplement your faith with virtue. Continuing on, and virtue with knowledge. We've already seen how the role of knowledge, uh, the role that knowledge plays in the life of the Christian, but we cannot cease to grow in knowledge of Christ at our salvation. Our faith is supplemented and grown as we grow in our knowledge of Christ and the work that he has done. There's a classic of idea of how you know someone. How do you grow in knowledge of someone? If you were to learn to know me, if you said, I want to know Josh, how would you go about it? You could go read my biography on the City Press website, which is very short. <laughs> you could talk to people about me. You could ask my wife. You could ask my kids. You could ask my parents about me. I think, ultimately, if you really want to get to know me, you'd have to come talk to me. Come get to know me by learning from me, about me, engaging with me in some capacity. Ultimately, the knowledge of a person comes through relationship and engagement with that person. You wouldn't say, I know someone, um, an, a Hollywood actor or, or a politician, I know someone in the same way that you would say, I know my wife. You might say, I know them, but the meaning is different and we understand it in that sense. And so in this sense, friends, we are called to grow in our knowledge of God. And to that end, we can read books about God, like books on theology, we can talk to other people about God. We can have Bible studies and fellowship, which are great things. We can talk to other people about God, reading commentaries. But we need to make the best use of the best means that we have been given. We are to be reading the words of God himself that he has preserved and given to us in the Holy Scriptures. And we are to be talking to him directly through our prayers. These, my friends, are the primary means by which we can grow in our knowledge of our loving Savior. Are you making use of them? Supplement your faith with virtue or excellence, and excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. Again, I think the analogy to the Olympian is a good one. If we are to make every effort to strive to grow our faith, we need to exercise our self-control. 
I'm reminded of a factoid that I once heard of the great theologian Jonathan Edwards. Edwards writes, by a sparingness in diet and eating as much as may be what is light and easy of digestion, I shall doubtless be able to think more clearly and shall gain time. One, by lengthening out my life. Two, shall need less time for digestion after meals. Three, shall be able to study more closely without injury to my health. Four, shall need less time for sleep. And five, shall, be, shall more seldom be troubled with the headache. It's a silly and trite idea, but I think it really gets to the core of what Peter's going at. Are you considering whether the food that you are putting in your body will be conducive to this great effort of supplementing our faith? Have you considered your self-control to that very level? I don't think we need to dwell on the idea of eating in particular, but rather the point is, what is your self-control directed towards? Are you controlling what you eat in order to grow your faith or in order to grow your self-righteousness? Are you tightly disciplining your exercise in order to have a swim body or that you might have more energy to grow in your excellence and knowledge of the Lord? Each aspect of self-control can be good and we must consider them well, but the consideration is whether or not they are directed towards our righteousness or the Lord's righteousness. And with self-control, with steadfastness. Steadfastness or perseverance is similar to this idea of self-control. It's a concerted effort to engage and direct our will towards the righteousness of God. Have you considered steadfastness as a quality in which you can grow? I think, I think as I thought about it, we, we generally consider someone as having it or not. It's not really a virtue that we grow in, it seems like. Or if we do grow in it, it seems to me as though it comes through circumstances that we have no control over. They simply had to endure the pain or the suffering or the difficulty or the turmoil. I think I see in this virtue a special level of rebuke as I consider it in my own life. I'm persistently engaging in the grass is greener thinking. If only I can finish this project, then I'll have more time. If only my kids will be a bit older, I can make a little bit better effort. If I can get through this season of work, then I'll be able to make time for that. As difficulty arises, I can so easily jump, uh, justify putting off my perseverance until it is an easier time. Brothers and sisters, steadfastness is another virtue in which we must strive to grow. As Lloyd-Jones writes, you must add this to your faith. It does not mean passively looking to the Lord. You yourself have to exercise patience and go on steadily doing this day by day. Peter continues, and steadfastness with godliness. Another word that we might use is piety, which might seem a strange or uncomfortable term. How often have you used piety in a rather negative sense? Ugh, he's so pious. However, just like self-control... Just like steadfastness, if this piety is directed towards the wrong thing, it's not virtuous. How often do we see piousness being a piousness of self, of self-righteousness, and of self-aggrandizement? Rather, Peter is pointing his readers towards a piety of God. And as one help commentator helpfully points out, the point is that this virtue indicates appropriate respect and reverence towards the deity, that is God. This is a virtue that needs to be appropriately cultivated and grown in our lives, but it also needs to be directed in the right direction. That is towards God. 
But more than that, the readers of Peter's letter, they would have understood this term a little bit more broadly. Not only did piety demand the respect and reverence of whichever deity was in mind, but it also included those associated with that deity. And this idea is helpful as we transition to the last two of these virtues. These former virtues that we've already been looking at are very vertically directed. They are virtues of pointing ourselves towards God in the right manner. The ones that are following, the ones we are going to be looking at, are horizontally oriented virtues. They are virtues pointing to one another. So verse 7, and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Not only do we inculcate in ourselves the private virtues of excellence, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, and godliness, but if these virtues do not lead to pointing outside of ourselves, to loving our neighbor, then these virtues are not being properly formed. In this particular circumstance, Peter is doing what so many writers of the New Testament have done. They are taking the requisite moral responsibility of what have, would have been understood at that time and expanding it, making it more difficult to follow, making it more difficult to try, to try to achieve. In this particular case, they would have understood brotherly affection, brotherly love, as something that you extend to people in your household. But it extends at the extent of your household. You're in competition with the other households. That's the extent of your affection for one another. Peter is saying we extend our brotherly affection to all those in the church. We have been made brothers and sisters in Christ. We are one family and therefore we extend that love to one another. It's a radical concept to the first century world. But not only do we extend that affection to the church, we ought to be extending that love to the world around us. And that's the last virtue. And we see these virtues as an exposition of Jesus' summation of the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We love God in our excellence, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, and godliness. And we love our neighbor in our brotherly affection and love for our neighbor. Therefore, for this very reason, as Peter writes, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. We move into the last verse here, verse eight, and it really is an encapsulation of these previous five verses. It's really an explication of what came before it. Peter writes, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have these qualities, but not only do we have them, we are increasing in them. There's a persistent growth. There's a persistent need to strive and expend effort and to be growing in these virtues. We don't strive for a season, reach a certain level of excellence and then godliness and, and then say, okay, that's good enough. No, brothers and sisters, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. Again, I think it's helpful to consider Jonathan Edwards. As a, as a young student in theology, he set out a series of resolutions for himself, basically uh, standards by which he uh, intended for himself uh, to live by. 
And his 28th resolution was to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. Edwards is saying, I'm going to grow in these things and I'm going to do it so consistently that I can see that pattern of growth in my life. But that growth has to be directed in the right direction. Knowledge is that is only for puffing up, um, for filling up our minds, for our own edification, is, as Peter says, fruitless and ineffective. Self-control, however great, if it isn't directed toward the glory of God, is ineffective. It is fruitless. What good is our steadfastness if it isn't steadfastness in the Lord? Our charity, if not done in faith towards the glory of God, however wonderful the charity might be, it is ineffective and unfruitful. Brothers and sisters, we can do however many Bible studies, read however many commentaries or Christian articles, come to however many church services, but unless you have these qualities and they are increasing, you will be ineffective and unfruitful in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The image of bearing fruit, this fruitfulness, I think is a perfect image as we return to considering this through the lens of spiritual depression. Often as we discuss spiritual depression, we have the imagery of a desert. You know, the barren, the cracked, dry ground of the desert. No matter what, where we wander, how we strive, where we go, there's nothing to break that vast expanse of the desert. But Peter here has given us one way that we might break through the desert and tap into the vast resources that God has already given to us. In order to be fruitful, to produce fruit in this desert, we need to make every effort to supplement our faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We return to where we began in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things that pertain to life. Jesus said in John 10, I came that you may have life and life to the full. Friends, we're not talking about cold discipline, cold knowledge, cold charity. No, my friends, we are talking about life itself, abundant and full life. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God's soul, for I shall praise again my salvation, and my God. In a few minutes during communion, we'll sing the words of a song on Psalm 42. And the songwriter has summed up the words of this psalm in the refrain, I am satisfied in you. Brothers and sisters, we have our satisfaction in Christ. We have our deepest need, our most heartfelt desires, our greatest hunger satiated in Christ. I am satisfied in you, in Christ alone are we satisfied. For he came to give us life 
and life to the full. We are not waiting for this to be given to us, friends. We have already been granted all things pertaining to life and godliness. So as we turn to the table, as we eat this bread and drink this wine, we come to see that we are satisfied here at the table in Christ alone, who has already given us all things pertaining to life. Pray with me. God, we lean into your great and very precious promises that you have given to us. God, we know that we are incapable of achieving anything by our efforts. But God, by your promise, you have given us the Holy Spirit to lead, guide, and make effective the efforts that we have to supplement our faith with these virtues, God. God, I pray that you would allow us to grow in dependency on you and what you have already granted to us and give us the energy and the effort and the capacity to be diligent in the pursuit of the supplementing of our faith by your power. God, help us to be effective and fruitful in our knowledge of you. In your name we pray, amen.